My name is Mike. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church Halifax. Uh, it's good to see you all here this morning. Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to open to Matthew chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide where you'll find the text that our sermon will be based on. It's in Matthew chapter 24. As I said, this week it marks the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, it's a four-week um, season uh, that culminates in Christmas Day. Uh, the word Advent, if you're not familiar with that, it comes from a Latin word which means coming or arrival. And it's the season where the church meditates on the two Advents of Jesus Christ, both his first Advent and his second Advent. Now for most of us, the Advent season is a season where we're exclusively focused on, we are most excited about Jesus' first coming. It's Christmas, Mary and Joseph, the angels, the shepherds, the three wise men, the baby lying in a manger. And that's good because the first advent is good news for this world. We're right to be excited, to anticipate celebrating his first advent, that in Christ we celebrate that God has come to dwell with us. There's evidence that the church has celebrated the season of advent since around the fourth century at least, and that it's a season that moved naturally into the Christmas celebration. So our, our focus on the first advent, that makes sense. But during the reformation of the church, in and around the 16th century, that focus uh, on advent, it began to look not only at Jesus' first advent, but in particular on his second advent. Every week at the Lord's Supper, I say something that's known as the memorial acclamation. This is something that was taken from uh, early Eastern Christian liturgies. It's now used today uh, throughout the Christian church in the West. And it goes like this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ will come again. Uh, this second coming, this second advent of Christ has also been seen by the church throughout the ages as good news. Uh, Christ's second advent is something that Christians need to celebrate, to anticipate, to look forward to with the same excitement and anticipation that we have uh, as we celebrate his first advent. But often it isn't. <laughs> Christ's second advent is often looked toward with some fear, with some apprehension. We don't decorate for it in the same way. Our Advent sermon series, therefore, over the next four weeks, will focus not on the first Advent of Jesus. We'll have some Advent readings uh, early on in the service to kind of walk us through that beautiful, glorious Christmas story. Hopefully you pick up an Advent guide on the info table so that during the week you can remember both his first and second Advent. But our special focus in the sermons over the next four weeks will be on the good news of Jesus' second Advent. We'll be looking at the parables Jesus spoke in Matthew 24 and 25, part of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. This teaching of Jesus took place in the final days of his earthly ministry, just before his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. He taught this while sitting on a mountain range that overlooked the ancient city of Jerusalem, where God's temple stood, a place called the Mount of Olives. And so in these four parables that we'll go over over the next four weeks, um, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus teaches his people, among many things, how they ought to be prepared for his second advent. I'm going to read for us from Matthew chapter 24. You can see, uh, if you're using the worship guide, it's just referencing verses 1 through 3, and then it jumps to 36 and 51. That's because that'll be our main focus today. But I'm going to read the entirety of Matthew 24 for us, just so we have an idea of what's going on. Jesus left the temple and was going away. 
when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. But because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. See when you see So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen such as has not been from the beginning of the world unto now. No, it never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the west and shines as far as, comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. 
And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to come and rescue us. We thank you for Jesus' earthly ministry, for his life of service, for his willingness to die in our place, to give us life in him. We praise you for his heavenly ministry, that today he rules and reigns at your right hand, empowering his people to follow him as he continues to build his kingdom and power. And Father, we also now thank you and look forward to the day when you promise Christ will come again to bring to completion his work of renewal and redemption. We look forward to that day when, we will, when he will make all the broken things new, where death itself will forever be swallowed up. We ask now that we would hear these words spoken by your ruling son, with faith and repentance. Break our hardened hearts now by the hammer of your spirit and make us alive to what you have to say to us now. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. The Olivet Discourse from which we've just read at length is perhaps one of the most difficult sections of the Gospels to interpret. Great choice for Christmas, Mike. (laughs) Uh, Picking a tough text. Shouldn't you be preaching through a Christmas carol or something uplifting? It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. Historically, there have been lots of wranglings over the Olivet Discourse. This portion of scripture that we're in this morning and over the next couple of weeks. But really, if we were to summarize all of the various interpretations of it, we could land on about four It's going to be a bit of a longer sermon because I want to give this introduction. I won't give it every time, but I think it's important for us to set the table right. There are four main views of the Olivet Discourse. Let me explain each of them briefly. The first view is that in chapters 24 through 25, Jesus is speaking exclusively and only about events that are just about to happen in and around Jerusalem. Jesus is speaking as a prophet here and foretelling events that are just around the corner from happening, specifically the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman Empire and their armies, which would happen in 70 AD. Jesus' disciples, if you look at verse 1 of our text, point out to Jesus the beauty of the temple in Jerusalem. In Mark's gospel, he records a note of marvel in their voices. They're saying, Jesus, would you look at these beautiful stones? Would you look at these glorious, wonderful buildings? 
The temple in Jerusalem, you need to know, was astoundingly beautiful in the first century. It was, it was far more than a building. It was, a, it was a complex of buildings. It was the center of all of Jewish life and religion and culture and identity. A very weak, modern comparison for us as Canadians would be Parliament Hill in downtown Ottawa. It's also a, you know, a unique complex of buildings central to Canadian politics and history and identity to a much lesser degree, of course, than the temple was. It's also designed architecturally, spatially to give us a, a sense of wonder and grandeur and glory. The Jerusalem temple was opulent. It was beautiful. It was a wonder in the ancient world, widely admired. And Jesus, if you look at verse 2, what does he say of it? It's all coming down. Not one stone will be left on the other. It's all going to be thrown down. And this is exactly what happened historically in 70 AD. Within one generation of Jesus saying these words, within 40 years of Jesus' prophecy here. In 70 AD, historians tell us a group of Jewish rebels revolted against the occupying Roman Empire and their coup failed miserably. And in 70 AD, the Roman armies, led by the future emperor of Rome, Titus, rampaged in Jerusalem, utterly destroying the city of Jerusalem and the magnificent temple itself. Not one stone of the temple or its buildings were left upon another. Its destruction was total. All that remains uh, to this day of that ancient city is a portion of limestone wall, part of a retaining wall in the west of the city, what's known as the Western Wall. And so this first view of Matthew 24 through 25 is that Jesus is exclusively and only talking about the events that are soon to come in 70 AD. Truly I say to you, he says in verse 34, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the pictures that he's given throughout this chapter of cosmic upheaval, of the end of the age, uh, this is referring to a specific age, the age uh, of the Jewish uh, uh, religion, um, of being ready for that day, for a changeover in the ages. Jesus only has this in mind, the climactic, destructive end of the Jewish age, which came, arguably, in 70 AD. Jesus is warning his disciples that God's judgment is coming. Be ready. Watch. Wait. That's the first view. And it's entirely historical. The second view of the Olivet Discourse is almost the exact opposite of the first. The first view sees Jesus describing something that will happen um, uh, within one generation, 40 years or so. But the second view that we're looking at is that Jesus here is talking about something that is entirely in the future. Completely in the future. In these two chapters, Jesus is describing not the end of Jerusalem or the Jewish age, but he's describing the end of time and space as we know it. The end of the world, the final judgment. Something that is still future to us gathered here today. So it's a prophecy that Jesus is still waiting for its fulfillment more than 2,000 years after he spoke it. Now this view is pretty rare. And it's a little bit odd when you think about it because it sees that Jesus' disciples in verses 1 and 2 and 3 uh, and, and so on are asking him a specific question about something that he's just been talking about, about the temple's destruction, and then Jesus just decides to change the subject entirely. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about something way, way, way into the future. He doesn't answer their questions about Jerusalem or the temple, but talks about the end of time uh, when God will bring his final judgment on all humanity. The third view of the Olivet Discourse is a half-and-half half view, all right? 
Jesus' response is a mixed one. This third view sees that part of Jesus' answer is indeed prophesying about the destruction coming to Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, that it is coming very soon. But at the same time, he mixes in prophecies about the end of time and space as we know it, the final judgment on the world. Now, it's not entirely clear to the people who hold this third view when Jesus is switching from talking about one event or the other, uh, which parts are about Jerusalem and which parts are about the last day of the universe. Some say he actually switches in verse 36, where we're attending to, uh, from 36 on, but there's no clear consensus on that. The fourth view, and this is the view that we're taking over the next couple of weeks because I think it's the most consistent. I think it's the most convincing. It's ha- it, it has a great... Uh, historical, theological pedigree. Many people throughout the church have believed this throughout history, and it's this. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking about both 70 AD and his second and final coming because the former is a picture or a type of the latter. The sureness of God's coming judgment of Jerusalem, which Jesus here vividly describes its thoroughness its seriousness, the necessity of God's people to be ready for it. This is a lens for anticipating God's final judgment, Jesus's second advent. Jerusalem's judgment is a foreshadowing of final judgment. The 19th century Anglican scholar Henry Alford, he said, it must be borne in mind that the whole of the Olivet Discourse is spoken in the pregnant language of prophecy in which various fulfillments are involved, the destruction of Jerusalem and the final judgment being both enwrapped in the words. Jesus speaks in the Olivet Discourse. Alfred says, with the pregnant language of prophecy, he's speaking about both judgments because to speak of one is to speak of the other. If you want to understand what Jesus' second advent will be like, if you want to be prepared for it, to see it for for what it will certainly be like. Jesus draws our attention to what will for the disciples soon happen in and around Jerusalem in 70 AD. The readiness that his disciples were called to have regarding the end of Jerusalem and its glorious temple is the same readiness the disciples of Jesus throughout history down to this day are called to have as we await his second advent. So so now back to our text. Those are the four views. Now we're going to look at three images. There are three images in our text this morning that Jesus gives to his disciples which inform them of the quality of the readiness they need to have to prepare for Jesus' arrival. When Jesus returns, whether it's in judgment on Jerusalem or on the last day or even at the end of your life when your days are over and you face judgment, his arrival can be pictured using three different images. The flood, the thief, and the master. The flood the thief and the master. First, the flood. One image of Jesus' second advent is that it'll, it'll be like the worldwide flood, which we read about in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Now, first, let me just draw your attention to verse 36, because I think there's something important here that we need to uh, understand uh, uh, as we prepare for Christ's return. This is what he says. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father only. It's pretty straightforward here, I think. We don't know, and we aren't intended to know, when the second advent will happen. There can be an odd obsession in some circles of the church and in the world, a preoccupation with the end of days. Both in the church and in the world, there is an unhealthy apocalyptic 
uh, interest. People are trying to predict the timing of Jesus' second coming like a weatherman is trying to predict the coming of a hurricane. When will it make landfall? What is the exact moment? So such people will read blogs, they'll interpret the book of Revelation, and they'll try to triangulate the precise timing of when Jesus will return. But Jesus says this, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So unless you fancy that you have more insight, more intel than the angels who are in the very presence of God, unless you think you've got a leg up on Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, you don't even need to think of trying to predict when the second coming will be. You should not make any guesses. And while that is true, while we're not told when Christ will return, we are being told something of vital importance in these texts, that we are to always be ready for his arrival. We are always to be ready. Not only that, these three images all contribute uniquely to how we're to be ready for his second coming. The first image, again, is Noah's flood. The second advent will be like that. Just as in Noah's day, before the flood, so too, before Christ's return, people will be living like they always do. It's happened in Noah's day, it's happening in our day as well. In verse 38, just as in Noah's day, people were eating, look at verse 38, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the flood and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The sense here that Jesus is giving is that people then were so preoccupied with the things of earth not, not bad things necessarily. Now, the book of Genesis does note that that generation was particularly wicked. But here, Jesus just notes that there was, you know, there's nothing in particular wrong with eating or drinking or marrying or being given into marriage. But Jesus is saying that these good things were distractions to people from the coming flood. They were looking one way when they should have been looking the other way. Noah, of course, ate and drank. Noah was married. He had kids. But he alone was also preparing for the flood. He knew these good things must not be a distraction from the promised coming flood. For someone to spend their entire lives then, primarily focused on physical fitness or appearance, on financial security, on their education, on professional development, or, or on romantic relationships, Jesus warned such people, if this is where your attention lies... If it is held on those things and not on me, you won't be ready when I arrive. You'll be caught unaware, looking in the other direction, and you will be swept away along with all of the things that you've built your life on. As one writer puts it, these lawful things undo us when unlawfully managed. These lawful things undo us when unlawfully managed. To see things rightly uh, is what the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry calls a believing foresight. We need to have a believing foresight. A believing foresight helps us from admiring or overvaluing earthly things. Henry reminds us that the most beautiful body will shortly be worm's meat, and the most beautiful building a ruinous heap. This doesn't mean that we don't take care of our bodies. It doesn't mean that we don't build. Architects, don't worry. The disciples were too focused, perhaps, on the beauty of Jerusalem and the temple. It was stunning to them. It captured 
their attention. And Jesus said, it won't last. Look to what's eternal. What are you focused on this morning? What preoccupies your thoughts, your prayers, your time, and your money? What is distracting you? What is keeping your eyes from being ready, from making preparation for Jesus' sure and certain second advent? The call for us this morning is a believing foresight. To not undervalue things of earth, but certainly not to overvalue them, to be distracted by them. We are called to keep our focus where it belongs, on Christ and his return. The second image Jesus gives to describe his advent is that it'll come like a thief at night. This is a common image throughout the New Testament. How should people prepare and anticipate for his coming? Verse 42 and 44, you can look at it. Jesus gives them several expressions to prepare themselves. He says, stay awake, be ready. These expressions could also be translated as stay alert, keep watch. A good thief, of course, doesn't announce their arrival beforehand. That would, be, that would be poor form on behalf of the thieving community, they would say. This is not, this is not our common practice. This is not a best practice among us, okay? Uh, because they come at an opportune moment, which is a moment that the homeowner will not anticipate them coming. Now, the point of comparison here isn't to make Jesus seem like some sort of scoundrel who wants to, like, jump up on you and scare you and take all your stuff away. The point here in this image is to tell us how we're to be ready for his coming. The quality of our preparedness. Again, the 17th century Puritan commentator Matthew Henry is instructive here. This is what he writes. It is the great duty and interest of all the disciples of Christ to watch, to be awake, to keep awake. As a sinful state or way is compared in the Bible to sleep, senselessness, and inactivity, so a gracious state or way is compared to watching and waking. We must watch for our Lord's coming. Listen to what he says. To watch implies not only to believe that our Lord will come, but to desire that he would come. To be often thinking of his coming and always looking for it as sure and near, though the time of it is uncertain. If we truly believed that a thief was coming, we'd stay awake, right? We'd, we'd think often about it. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, he's coming. Focus. <laughs> I need to be ready. What Matthew Henry is pointing out here is that if you are, listen, if you're not awake, if you're not anticipating Christ's arrival, if you're not acting in any way like Jesus will soon return, do you believe in him at all? Do you think that he was telling the truth when he said he was returning? Or do you believe in your heart he was just bluffing? He wasn't being serious about it. See, this heightened sense of readiness, of alertness Jesus is commending isn't meant to grow our fear. It's meant to grow our faith. This is said and spoken to you this morning, not so that you will grow in fear, but so that you will grow in faith. Jesus said he's coming, and so I, I want to live like he is coming. I want to act like I believe the words that he speaks here. Christian, what would your, like, look, what would your life look like if you anticipated Christ's return at an hour you did not expect. What would your pursuit of holiness look like? What would you, helped by the grace of God, change in your life? Would you be found by Christ alert, awake, active, 
behaving like he is coming soon, or would you be found asleep? Uncaring, uninterested, when or if he's even coming at all. Friends, Christ is coming. He's promised he will. Therefore, stay awake. Jesus tells his disciples that his second advent, first, will be like a flood. So so don't get distracted. Second, it'll be like a thief in the night. So stay awake. And third and finally, Jesus says his second coming, his second advent, will be like a master returning home. So serve him joyfully. In verses 45 through 51, you can look at those, Jesus tells a parable about two possible ways a servant in a household could live as they await their master's return. Starting in verse 45, he describes first the faithful and wise way. First, a servant uh, whom the master sets over his household with the instructions, uh, give them, uh, that means uh, the members of the master's household, give them their food at the proper time. And this servant, in this first way, does so faithfully and joyfully. Ancient households uh, could be very large. Um, They included not just the immediate family of the master, so his his wife and his kids or or whoever it was, but also their extended kin networks, uh, relatives, uh, parents, grandparents. uh, Households that had servants, like in this story, would include not only the servants, but also their families within the household. So this job that was being given to the servant was a big job. It was a big responsibility. And in verses 46 through 47, the faithful and wise servant is the servant who when his master finally returns home, finds him doing so when he comes. He finds the servant serving the food the master has given him and serving it to the, to, to the members of the master's household, just as he asked. In verse 47, the master returns, he sees this faithfulness, he commends it, and he sets the servant over even more. He gives him more and greater responsibilities. But there's another way a servant could act with a very different outcome. The same responsibilities are given. The same call is given to them, but there's a very different response. In verse 49, look at it. The servant notes, the master is delayed. I don't see him. And instead of serving those in the master's household, verse 49, what does the servant do? He beats his fellow servants. Instead of serving others, he serves himself. He eats and he drinks with the drunkards. He takes what is owed by the master, which is intended to bless others, and he blesses himself with it. What was intended to give to the other servants in the household, he gluts himself with. And then in verse 50, the master arrives on a day that the wicked servant does not expect. And what happens? Verse 51, the servants cut into pieces. Now this is likely hyperbole, idiom, it's not referring to the servant being dismembered, but rather that he is being harshly dismissed. He is thrown out of the master's household. He's out uh, of his job. He's lost everything. Now, like the image of the thief, the image of the returning master, at first it can evoke in us extreme fear, but I don't think that's the intent of Jesus here. I think it's trying to evoke in us not extreme fear, but extreme service. Extreme service. This image of a wise and faithful service shows us what our lives should look like if we expect, anticipate, and long for Christ's second advent. We'll not be found simply serving ourselves, but serving others, as the Master would have us. In his first advent, Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve others. 
And he left his disciples with that life as an example to follow. I want you to note something very clear here in verse 51. Note that for a Christian who decides not to live this life of service, verse 51 says, the result is that he will be thrown out with the hypocrites. Thrown out with the hypocrites. Fleming Rutledge tells the joke of two friends who attend a worship service at church together. One friend invited the other, and the one who was invited tells his friend that he never went to church because it was filled with hypocrites. That's okay, responds his friend. There's always room for one more. If you're here this morning and you are one of our longtime hypocrites, or if you're visiting us and you're a first-time hypocrite, (laughs) we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. What happens when you and I realize that we're all hypocrites? That you and I commend a life of service, that when we see selfishness, we know it's not right. But we live lives of service only to ourselves. What happens when we realize that we say with our lips, we believe that Christ will return, but we act and we talk like he never will? What do we do? We find ourselves the kind of people who look down on others for not being as heavenly minded as we are, for just being too preoccupied with the things of earth, but our own lives are completely distracted and worried about things that will soon be swept away. This is what we must do, friends, then. We must look to Christ, Christ who has died, Christ who is risen, Christ who will come again. We look to Christ because on the cross, in his death, Jesus was swept away in the flood of God's wrath against hypocrites, against selfish people like you and I, so that we could find refuge and safety in him. On the cross, Jesus, the one who is still to come, he had his clothes, he had his dignity, he had his honor and even his life stolen from him, robbed so that you and I could receive a rich treasure and have it safe for us in heaven. On the cross, Jesus Christ was cut to pieces. He was put out with the hypocrites so that hypocrites like you and I could be forgiven so that we could be welcomed into the master's home and be fed with the food from his table. Friends, Christ's second advent can be good news for you. It doesn't need to evoke fear, but it can only be anticipated and longed for if you're in Christ, resting at the foot of the cross. One of the Christmas carols we sing is, mild he lay his glory by, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ are connected vitally. It is in his first advent that we find the hope that we need for his second advent. Christ has come to raise the sons of earth, to give them second birth. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves to your son. We ask that you would help us to be awake, to be ready to long for, to anticipate his second coming. Lord, we need the eyes of faith to believe uh, that we who have failed in so many ways may be made ready, not through our own efforts simply, but through the work of Christ himself, who changes our hearts and makes us ready. Father, we, we, uh, we gather now before you, uh, praying the prayer which Jesus himself taught us to pray. Let me invite you to turn in your worship guide to the Lord's Prayer as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.